Hello, and welcome to the Encouragement Expert Podcast. We're glad you're here with us today. Let's join Pastor Wes Dolphinbaugh for an encouraging word titled, Magnificent Mercy. Praise the Lord. It's a delight to be with you today. I love each one of you, and God bless you richly. Let's say a prayer together. Father, we love your word. We love your Holy Spirit applying it to our lives and leading us into all truth. We pray you'll come and really help each of us today uh, to grow and become like Jesus. We ask this for your glory, for the benefit of multitudes of others, and of course, we know we'll benefit as we are conformed to your image. We ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. My message is entitled, Magnificent Mercy. Now, since I've been in my early 30s, I have been collecting virtues. I read how Benjamin Franklin made a list of 12 virtues, and then he defined what they would look like fleshed out in his life. And so I started doing that, but I uh, didn't want to stop at 12. So I have uh, 119 virtues, and I have a, a 120th one I'll add pretty soon. Um, but one of my virtues, number 37 on my list, is merciful. And I defined it this way, respond in the opposite spirit to offenses. Well, God has been showing me much more about mercy and just how much this virtue can help us. And really, there could hardly be a more important virtue. So my definition of it is expanding. My first point is that mercy is the forerunner to compassion. You remember John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus Christ, and he prepared the way for him. That's the way uh, mercy operates with compassion. Mercy prepares the way for compassion. Now, compassion is defined as love using its power. So anytime Jesus had compassion on people, that many really felt love for them, but he was going to feed them miraculously or heal their sick or something. There was going to be a display of power. But mercy always comes first before compassion. Now, mercy uh, moves wrath and judgment out of the way, and it also moves apathy and indifference out of the way. And I asked the Lord, I says, what's, uh, what's the difference between apathy and indifference? So I Googled it, and both definitions came up almost identical. So the Lord gave me the definition. Apathy is deaf to the cries for help. It's blind to human need. It just doesn't register. But indifference hears and sees, but doesn't care. Well, mercy moves both of those two things out of the way so that compassion can operate in our lives. And we'll never be compassionate to people if we're judging them, if we're angry at them, or if we're apathetic or indifferent towards them. Uh, but when we're full of mercy, we forgive. Mercy is the master virtue of forgiveness. Mercy overlooks faults. It holds back wrath, and it gives full attention to the needs of others. I want to read some verses that will show you how mercy precedes compassion. So this is Exodus thirty-three nineteen, And the Lord said, I will call, cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. He's talking to Moses. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice, mercy comes first. Now, before the Lord displays compassion to people, he always has mercy on them. So, in another scripture, it said, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Well, gracious is where the power and love comes out. But first, he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, Moses gave instructions of how Israel was to treat an idolatrous city in Canaan if that, that city would not surrender to them. Jericho was one such city. And uh, he said, you are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all of its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. The town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. And none of the condemned things are to be found in your hands 
Then the Lord will turn from his fierce anger, will show you mercy, and will have compassion on you. You might remember in the book of uh, Joshua how Achan took some silver and some gold and some fancy clothes from Jericho, and so they lost the next battle, and uh, it was a disaster. He didn't pay attention to this word from the Lord. But I'm using it to just show you that God has mercy first, then compassion. A beautiful verse from Isaiah. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Well, if he lifted us up and and carried Israel, uh, he had mercy first, and then he used his loving power to help them. My second point is put mercy first in your prayers. When we pray, we want God to show compassion to us or for whomever we're praying for, but mercy prepares the way for compassion, so we ought to ask for mercy for us, for our nation, or for anyone for whom we're interceding. And when we pray, we should also give mercy. Jesus said, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Mark eleven twenty five. So forgiveness is an act of mercy. We give mercy if we want to receive it. And if we receive mercy, we should always want to give it. Take notice of the people who received miracles of healing and deliverance through the ministry of Jesus and notice that they ask for mercy first and their request second. A Canaanite woman uh, from the vicinity came to Jesus saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Well, Jesus ended up healing the daughter just with a word and delivered her from that demon But notice the woman uh, asked for mercy before she asked for deliverance, and then she got the deliverance for her daughter. And that's Matthew 15, 22. Here's another one, Matthew 17, 15. A man brought his demonized son to Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire, into the water. Now he... Jesus did cast that demon out of that boy, and he was healed completely. But notice the man said, Lord, have mercy on my son. And then he asked for deliverance. All right, here's another example in Matthew chapter 20. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So Jesus stopped and he called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, we want our sight. And so then Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. But notice again, they ask for mercy first and their healing second. Another Bible story like that is when Daniel, in the book of Daniel, the king of Babylon had a a very scary dream. It was a prophetic dream. And he called all the wise men in and wanted them to tell him what the dream was because he wanted them to interpret the dream. But he didn't believe their interpretation would be accurate. So he thought, if you really know anything, if you really are, you know, have supernatural power, you can tell me the dream, and then I'll know that your interpretation is true. And uh, when they said, no, nobody could uh, do that for you, only the gods could do something like that, then he uh, ordered that all the wise men in Babylon would be killed. Now, Daniel and his three friends were officials in Babylon. They weren't uh, like those occult uh, stargazers or fortune tellers, but nevertheless, they were being rounded up to be executed. And so Daniel appealed to the king for time. He said, King, I, I just give us a little time and, and, I'll, uh, and, and I believe we can give you the answer you want. So he was granted time. Now that night he came home and here's what the Bible says. Uh, when he talked to his three friends, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
Now notice he didn't start off saying, guys, we have got to pray for supernatural knowledge and wisdom and insight and intelligence. That's what he needed. But Daniel prayed for mercy first and then got the answer. He uh, dreamed the very same dream as the king and uh, then God gave him the interpretation. And then Daniel and his three friends were promoted. Now, Jesus is our great high priest in heaven. And the Bible says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Whatever your need is, you really need mercy first. And then God's grace, which means his activated power, is going to help you with your need, Hebrews 4.16. Asking for mercy is a, is a form of humility. It's a way of admitting that you haven't earned the miracle. You haven't earned the answer that you're asking for. And so when you ask for mercy, that's not a request based on how good you are, but on how good God is. Here's another example and that uh, later in his life, Daniel found out that uh, Jeremiah had prophesied the captivity of Israel was going to last 70 years. And he was fasting and interceding because he wanted God to rebuild Jerusalem where he grew up as a, a little boy. And then he was taken as a young uh, teenager to uh, Babylon. But in his prayer, he said, give ear our God and hear Open your eyes and see the desolation. I've got to turn the page here. The desolation of the city that bears your name. Now, listen to what he said. We do not make requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. I want to read that again, and I'll end up reading it several times. It's so key. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous. Daniel was righteous. But he left that off the table and he said, we're appealing to you because of your great mercy. And in that prayer, the angel Gabriel appeared and showed Daniel many, many years in the future, including the, the coming of the Messiah and uh, all, all so many, many things. It's just in one of the most incredible places in the Bible. So Daniel got an incredible answer to prayer, just, but he asked for mercy. My third point is we get more from God if we ask for mercy than if we just remind him of our righteousness. King Hezekiah led the nation of Israel in a revival and he restored the temple and uh, he led the people in keeping the feast of the Passover that hadn't been celebrated in years. And, and then uh, he prayed and God sent an angel and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian troops so that the city of Jerusalem uh, was spared from getting conquered by these Assyrians. Well, then Hezekiah got sick and got, had a boil that got infected. And uh, the prophet Isaiah was sent by God to say, set your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover, Isaiah 38 verse 1. Hezekiah was only 40 years old at the time, and he'd been very faithful to God. But when he prayed for healing, he appealed to God on the basis of his righteousness, not on a basis of God's mercy. And so when the prophet said, uh, you're going to die, set your house in order, you're not going to recover. The Bible says that <clears throat> he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, says. I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. I'll add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. Well, I've been reading the Bible since I was 12. And I'm uh, 70 years old. And all these years, I've been wondering from time to time why God only gave Hezekiah 15 extra years. You see, he was 40 when he got sick, and with 15 extra years, that means he died when he was just 55. Moses wrote in Psalms 90, our days may 
come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. That's where the song, I'll fly away, uh, is taken. Verse, Psalms 90, verse 10. But notice, a, a full lifespan is considered 70 or 80 years and up to 120. Well, suddenly the answer hit me, and I believe it was a flash of divine revelation. And I realized that Hezekiah had not asked his prayer. Uh, he asked his prayer based on his righteousness, not God's mercy. And so he only got 15 years. <laughs> it's almost funny, but if he had appealed to say, oh, God, you're so merciful and good. Won't you please heal me and extend my life? Then his prayer would have been based on the infinite goodness of God, but instead he based it on his little bitty goodness. Now, he's been a pretty good guy. So, based on his prayer, God was able to add 15 years to his life. But he didn't give him a full lifespan. And I believe with all of my heart that if Hezekiah had appealed to God on the basis of God's mercy— it would not have been just 15 years. It would have been a full lifespan. Let's compare that story to one that Jesus told about two men who went to the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Well, the Pharisee stood by himself and said, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Now, that's good. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a, a humbling thing to ask for mercy. All right. Have you ever tried to move the heart of God to respond in compassion to you by reminding him that you've been a good person, that you've been faithful, that you've served him? Now, that all may be true, but whatever your level of devotion to God is, it's very tiny compared to God's boundless mercy. Why should you appeal to God based on something as small as your own devotion? Why not appeal to God based on something really big, infinite, without limit? I see, I believe you'd get a much bigger miracle. Let's go back to the prayer of Daniel when he was interceding for the Jewish nation to be restored and Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Now, he could have said, Lord, you know, since I've been a young man, I've been living for you with all my heart, God. Remember when the king was trying to feed us all the rich food and all that alcohol, and I refused to eat the king's meat, and I wouldn't drink his wine, and I chose to just live on vegetables and water rather than defile myself, and well, all my life now I've been in the habit of praying three times a day, oh, hear me, God, remember me, God. Well, that would have all been true. Because the angel Gabriel, when he appeared, said to Daniel, O oh man, highly esteemed by God. <laughs> but Daniel is the guy that said, We don't make requests of you because we're righteous. Now, he wasn't saying he was unrighteous. He's just saying, I'm not appealing to you on the basis of our righteousness. I'm appealing to you on the basis of your great mercy. Daniel was a really wise person. He wasn't unrighteous. He was righteous, but he didn't appeal to God on that basis because it was too small. He appealed straight away to God's great mercy and received marvelous visitation and revelation. Let's look again at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. And this says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our confidence is based on Christ being blameless and perfect and being our high priest. And we first receive mercy because of his infinite sacrifice. And uh, we believe then he is our righteousness. And we find grace, God's activated power to help us in our time of need. 
Remember once again Daniel 9, 19, where he said, we do not make requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. My fourth point is if we apply uh, this truth in prayer, we're going to get much greater answers. Now, it is important to live righteously with all your heart, and we should love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But I don't have to tell God to remember my devotion like Hezekiah did. I can rather pray like Daniel did and not simply make an appeal because I've lived for God many years. I'm going to just appeal to God's mercy. You see, when you do that, that's an immediate problem for Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. All right, he's always wanting to accuse you, get some legal right to where he can afflict you or, or keep you from a blessing. If we base our appeal on our own level of devotion, then Satan can find fault. See, he can find something we did wrong or we didn't do right or we didn't do it at all. And we should have done it. He'll find something to accuse us of and try to hinder our prayers. But suppose we just bypass all that and go straight to the throne of God to first receive mercy. Well, he doesn't have anything to accuse us with. We're admitting we need mercy. <laughs> we're humbling ourselves to ask for mercy. And we're glorifying God's nature and character. And we're looking to his perfection, not our own. Now, since June 1 of 2004, I've traveled America speaking in churches, and most of my personal income has been earned through honorariums from churches. But all that was cut off in the middle of March in 2020, all right, uh, with the COVID-19 shutdowns where all churches were closed down, and then so very slow to open back up. During these seven months, God has sustained us, and I'm still in full-time ministry. And I found a verse where Paul wrote, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4.1. <laughs> Boy, I drew arrows around that. I marked that in my Bible. You see, I don't have this ministry by my great brains or outstanding character or tremendous faith or ingenious creativity and adaptability, if I had to avoid discouragement by looking at myself, I'd be more than discouraged. I would be freaked out. I'd be in despair. I mean, I'd be in total fear. But I have this ministry because of God's mercy, and therefore, like Paul, I do not lose heart. See, it's based on his greatness. I can approach the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy first and then find grace for uh, new direction, new ideas, new open doors, new ways of operating, new vision, new understanding, fresh revelation, new anointing, on and on. Once, uh, well, it was about last year this time, I was with some dear people in Vermont and a young lady that's prophetic there, uh, they were had me in a chair, they were all coming around praying for me, and then they'd give me uh, whatever prophetic words they felt they had. And one of the young women, uh, you know, in her, in her mid-20s, uh, knelt in front of me, and she said, uh, uh, artists have patrons that travel with them and pay their expenses, and they buy their clothes. They clothe them in their colors. And, and she said, God is uh, going to be your patron and he's lining things up so that it won't matter if you preach once a month or, or many times. So few or little, he's lining up your income so it's not going to be based on honorariums for, for speaking. He's going to be your patron. Well, I've seen that prove out over the last seven months where God has made, without honorariums, uh, funds come in, money come in many different ways. And Satan has tried to get me to take my eyes off of Jesus and look at the wind and the waves, so to speak, like Peter when he walked on water for a few steps and then sank. So I have to resist fear. I have to hold on to faith. And uh, this week I found a new meaning in a verse that never meant too much before to me where Jesus spoke to the Laodicean church in the book of Revelations. And he said, for these are the words of the amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Well, amen means so be it, see? So if Jesus promised me that he'd be my patron, 
He's the amen. He's the faithful witness. He's the so be it. He's not going to change his mind. And so I love that verse. I said, Jesus, you're my patron and you're my amen. You're the faithful and true witness. Here's a great verse, Isaiah 46, 4. Maybe if you're a teenager, you wouldn't uh, think it's so great, but it, uh, to many of us, it sounds pretty good. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Now, Jesus is the amen to that. He's the so be it, see? So, dear friends, resist fear and come to God in prayer with confidence because Jesus is your high priest who is the amen of God. Ask for mercy so that your prayer is based on his infinite goodness and not your own track record of devotion. Now, what about the uncertain future? See, we're uh, just a few days at the time of this recording less than a month before the presidential election, if, well, I just read today on the internet that groups are, are, are lining up to uh, cause national disruption if for some reason Donald Trump would win the election, uh, they would try to shut down the whole country thinking that he stole the election. I feel like we're headed for some real uh, rough and uncertain times, whatever happens. But you see, I don't know the future, but I do know what God's word says about his mercy. Now, here's what God's word says about his mercy. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. <laughs> Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Tremendous verses from the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. God is not going to forget to be merciful. He's not going to run out of mercy, and his character isn't going to change. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Wow. My fifth point, God wants us to be merciful and wants us to practice mercy. So the prophet, has, uh, God spoke through Hosea and said, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus quoted that verse. In Zechariah, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Notice mercy comes before compassion. God wants us to show mercy and compassion. To forgive is to show mercy. Jesus said, Forgive and you will be forgiven. Merciful people push aside apathy and indifference, and they care about the condition of others, regardless of whether that person is worthy or maybe that person is even ungrateful. Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tithe of your spices, garden herbs, you know, mint, dill, and cumin. Dill is like the little stuff they put in dill pickle jars, little round tiny little things. And the Pharisees were so self-righteous, they were counting those out on, on a table and then taking 10 and giving them to God. And so uh, he said, that's what you do, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced tithing without neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Another time, uh, an expert in the law asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Jesus asked him what was written in the law. How did he, how did he read it? He said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But this guy said, but, and, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus told the story of, a, you know, Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And uh, this guy was going down to the Jericho, but uh, some thieves robbed him, beat him up, left him for dead. And so a priest came by and uh, he was uh, apathetic. He didn't hear his cry. He didn't see his need. He just walked on by. 
And then a Levite, a helper to a priest, he came by, and he was indifferent. He heard the cries, saw the need, but he just walked on by. But when the Samaritan came by, he, he had mercy on the man. He uh, tore up his own clothes to make bandages, uh, poured his wine into the wounds to cleanse them, put, put olive oil on the bruises to help heal them put the man on his donkey, took, walked into town leading the man on the donkey, put him in the inn and paid the innkeeper to take care of him till he got well. And uh, so Jesus said, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now remember, the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus expects us to be saved by faith, but he wants faith that's alive and active and not dead. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High because he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So showing kindness to ungrateful and wicked people would surely be a true manifestation of mercy. Mercy doesn't do certain things, by the way. It refrains from wrath. It restrains wrath. And it holds back condemning and judging people. It refuses to speak angry and condemning words. So in this way, my little first definition is true. Respond in the opposite spirit to offenses. Merciful people pray for God to have mercy on others. Now listen to this prayer from Habakkuk because we should pray it for America. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, you could, you could be mad enough to wipe us out, but please remember your mercy, Lord. We've heard of your fame where you send great revivals, where you change whole societies, where there's a great national turnaround. Oh God, repeat it in our day. In wrath, remember mercy. When Paul was thrown into prison in Rome and he was a few days away from martyrdom, the Bible says that everyone in the province of Asia deserted him. Now, that Asia in those days was, uh, was referred to Greece and parts like that. And so he had lost a lot of friends through no fault of his own. And he, uh, he told, uh, I believe the letter was uh, to Timothy, and he, he said, they've all turned away from me, but may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he'll find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Now, see, Paul could have said, well, God, this guy did me good a few times, but then he turned from me and forsook him. God, you ought to just spank him real good, hit him upside the head. But see, Paul was filled with mercy, so he prayed mercy for this guy. All right, now that's a good way for us to pray. Instead of praying, Lord, why don't you whack those people? <laughs> I know you've all been tempted to pray that a few times, but it's much better to pray that God will have mercy on them. Now, merciful people never misuse God's mercy and try to take advantage of God. See, you might say, well, if God's so merciful, I'm, I'm going to quit trying so hard. But the opposite is true. Paul wrote, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans chapter 12. Because God has been so kind to give me mercy and gives me new mercies every day, I want to give him my body as a living sacrifice, as a thank offering. 
I want to give him my mind and my thoughts so he can transform me through the renewing of my mind. Another truth about mercy, merciful people renounce ways that would be unmerciful, and they refuse to use those ways to manipulate or control or take advantage of people. Now here's Apostle Paul again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, notice then, because of God's mercy, we don't want to go goofing off. We want to give him our very best. We want to live in a way that honors him constantly. My sixth major point here is mercy is a must, and so we need to take warning. The Apostle James wrote in chapter 2 of James, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, friend, there's nothing more fearful or terrible than judgment without mercy. And I urge you to memorize this verse because I have used it before to restrain myself if I felt so angry I felt like hurting somebody. Uh, and you can even do that in road rage. You know, you, you, you might think, oh, I would never hurt anybody. Well, you get uh, enraged then this is a good thing to say to yourself, uh, you know, judgment without mercy is going to be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. So I better, I better uh, straighten up here and not uh, give full vent to my anger. If you're tempted to do something cruel, quote that verse to yourself. But listen to me now. If you're apathetic so that you just train yourself not to look or see at human needs, or if you, when you see them, you train yourself to never respond, see, then you're apathetic or indifferent. Those are really dangerous because it means you're not being merciful. You're not being angry, but you're not being caring. So you ought to slap yourself in the face a few times with that. I mean, have you ever been driving late at night and you had to slap yourself in the face to try to stay awake so you don't have a wreck? We'll do that with this verse. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. Now take that really deep into your heart because when you read what Jesus said in Matthew 25, he talked about how as he sits someday as king and judges all the people, he'll divide them like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then he's going to say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And they'll say, when did we see you that way? And he said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Now, the other people were not merciful. They hadn't been cruel. They hadn't been wrathful. But they had been apathetic and indifferent. You see, they didn't notice that they were being unmerciful. They just didn't hear the cries of other people for help. And when they heard them, they didn't care. And so Jesus said, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. You didn't visit me. And so Jesus said, they, they will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not merciful. Now remember the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus told about a king who called a guy in and, the, and, and this guy owed the king 10,000 talents. And that's a big, great, big, heavy bag of gold. So the Passion Translation translates it as a billion dollars. He owed the king a billion dollars. He was unable to pay the debt, so the king ordered that he and his family would be sold to repay the debt. But he begged for mercy 
and the king just canceled the debt, a billion-dollar debt. But then that guy went out and found a fellow servant who owed him several hundred silver coins. <laughs> and that man begged for mercy, but this guy refused and had him thrown into prison till he should repay the debt. Well, the king heard about it, called him back in and said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. He owed a billion dollars. He couldn't pay it back outside of prison. He would never pay it back from inside prison, meaning he'd be tortured forever. And Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, so we use that a lot when I teach on forgiveness, but notice, shouldn't you have had mercy? Mercy is the great forgiver. Shouldn't you have had mercy? Judgment without mercy is going to be shown to people who are not merciful. Now, my seventh point, my last point, God often glorifies his name through mercy. Just before the crucifixion, where Jesus went to the cross, he said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. John chapter 12. Now, in my second year of Bible college, I was either 19 or 20, and God showed me the heart motive of Jesus was to bring glory to the Father. And from that time on, bringing glory to God has been my constant focus. I'm not bragging when I say that. It's true. I think about that day and night. Everything I do or don't do is filtered through the desire to glorify God. So for years, probably close to 20 years, I would pray, use me to bring you glory. And then I started praying, God, I want to bring you massive glory. And I prayed that another 20-some years. Now my prayers changed. God, use me to help others bring you massive glory. And I think that'll be the prayer that I'm praying when I cross the finish line into heaven. I don't think there'll be a fourth adjustment. You see, that's what my new book is all about, Good and Faithful Servant, a trumpet call to return to spiritual leadership. And by the way, we've made the DVD set. The teacher's guide is done. We're just doing the final edits. And uh, just within probably a couple of weeks, all that will be done. I'm hoping that everybody that listens to me would get one of those books. Let me send you the student guide. You can download it from our website for a dollar. We would just help you. I so want you to get that material because I want you to bring God massive glory. All right, now the Bible says that God uh, uh, has prepared good works in advance for you to do, Ephesians 2.10. And Jesus brought God glory on earth by completing the work the Father had given him to do. That's where I learned his heart motive, because he said uh, in John 17, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now give me the glory I had with you before the world began. And the Lord, that's where the Lord showed me that he wanted a higher heavenly platform to stand on so that from there he could bring the Father even more glory. Well, when he prayed this, this prayer, what shall I say, save me from this hour? And then he said, no, I'm just going to say, Father, glorify your name. And then the Father spoke from heaven. I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. You see, now Jesus was coming to a place of utter helplessness. He wasn't going to use his divine power as God in human form. He had laid that aside and ministered as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't going to call 12 legions of angels to help him, although he could have. He was going to go to the cross completely helpless. And he wasn't going to be able to do anything to glorify the Father in that helpless situation, especially if his body was dead. <laughs> he couldn't be healing the sick or raising the dead or casting out demons or teaching the Word of God to people if he was dead. His body would not be bringing God any glory. So Jesus prayed the Father would glorify his own name 
And the Father had already glorified it once by preparing all those good works in advance for Jesus to do. One time in John 14, Jesus said, The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So everything Jesus did was that first way that the Father glorified his name by working through Jesus. But now a second way was coming where he would glorify his name again. And that way was going to be what the Father did for Jesus, not what Jesus did for the Father. Now, in this COVID worldwide economic, it's been impossible for me to earn my living speaking in churches the way I've done for so many years. I wrote down nearly impossible, but I crossed out the word nearly. <laughs> a few things are opening up now, but for, for months, it's, uh, it's been you, no, no speaking in churches. And so now the, uh, when I, 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 uh, I look at my ministry when only just a few little speaking opportunities are opening up and then there'll be months on the calendar with nothing. Well, it looks like my ministry after all these years all these years of growing in knowledge and wisdom and character and anointing looks like it's just all going to stop. And I felt helpless. But I kept getting up early in the morning. I go to bed early and then I get up early and seek God for about three hours because I desperately need it. It's not that I'm so spiritual. And anybody, by the way, could get up and spend three hours with God if you just go to bed early. Go to bed at eight or nine and you'll get up at four or five. We waste a lot of time late at night that doesn't count for anything. If you could just learn that one thing, go to bed early, get up early, seek God. Anybody could do it. It's not hard. You don't have to be spiritual. I'm not doing it because I'm so spiritual, but because I'm so desperate and I've gotten addicted to it. In other words, I just love spending time with God. But see, God is glorifying himself that second way for me. All my life, I've focused on what can I do to bring God glory. Now, I'm just saying, God, it looks like it's going to be awful hard for me to bring you much glory. Glorify your name, Lord. And God's saying, I've glorified it through you for all these years, but I'm going to glorify it again by what I do for you when you can't do anything to glorify me. Now, when that gets inside of you, it'll be just about as meaningful as, as, as that original heart motive of Jesus wanting to bring glory to the Father. You'll see that the Father can glorify his name by what he does for you in his great mercy and kindness and love and compassion. And he'll help you. And he'll glorify his name when you are helpless. Paul and Silas had a, had a great ministry and they went over into Greece and uh, because Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come and help us. And so they led a lady to Christ named Lydia, a seller of purple cloth, and uh, she and her whole household were baptized. And then Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl who predicted the future and told fortunes for and made her masters, owners a lot of money. Well, Paul ruined their money-making machine by delivering her from that demon. And so they had Paul and Silas arrested and they beat them and they locked them in stocks. Now, a stock means that your hands are stretched out and, and locked in front of you and so are your feet and you can't do a thing. You can't scratch your nose. You can't move. And so they couldn't do any more to bring glory to God. They couldn't cast any demons out, couldn't lead anybody to Jesus. It was going to, if God was going to be glorified, he's going to have to glorify his name <laughs> by doing something for them. And so what did they do? They sang praises to God and it was midnight and they just were praising God. Lord, we love bringing you glory. Uh, but Lord, when we can't do anything to bring you glory, glorify your own name, Lord. Glorify your wonderful name. And then the earth began to shake. Now, this was an angelic earthquake because all the locks came undone. Every prisoner was set free. Every lock came. Undone. That wouldn't happen in a normal earthquake. The jailer ran in and was going to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Paul said, don't harm yourself. We're all here. 
And so he said, what do I have to do to get saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your household. And uh, so then he was baptized and joyfully found the Lord and his whole family that night. Well, you ever feel like you're in a similar situation where you've glorified God, but now you're helpless and you don't know what to do? Well, you can pray, Father, glorify your name. That's all I've ever wanted to do is glorify your name. But now I need you to glorify your name by what you do for me. And he'll glorify it again. Well, I want to give you my new expanded definition now in my virtue list. I, I, I expanded it. So now it says mercy slash merciful. And it says this, mercy is the master virtue of forgiveness Mercy is the forerunner to compassion, pushing aside wrath and judgment, apathy and indifference, so that compassion has its way. Mercy hears and sees human needs and cares. Mercy responds in the opposite spirit to offenses and shows kindness to the ungrateful and the wicked. I am an object of mercy. I have this ministry because of God's mercy. My identity is mercy by God's grace I am merciful. Now, as I end this sermon, I want to ask you to pray that God will be merciful to America. And when you pray, say, God, have mercy on our nation. Have mercy on our president. Have mercy on our government. Save our constitutional republic. Save our representative form of government. Save our constitution. Uh, Keep our nation from burning to ashes and self-destructing. Pray that God will mercifully open the eyes of the general public because Satan has deceived so many people with lies. And I tell you again why they get so deceived is when they're not thankful, their hearts are darkened and their thinking becomes futile. And so many people are not thankful to God and then it's easy for Satan to deceive them. But let's pray that God will show mercy to this nation and cause a great spiritual awakening and a massive revival in America. One that will not only affect this nation, but affect the whole world. Now remember, pray and appeal to God Daniel's way, not the way Hezekiah did. And I'll be a big friend of Hezekiah when I get up to heaven. I'm so glad we can learn from other people's mistakes, right? That's how we get wisdom wholesale. If we have to make our own mistakes, we pay retail for wisdom. But we can learn from these great Bible examples. Appeal to God on the basis of his infinite mercy. And then, friend, give yourself over to God to be his very own. Believe on Jesus. Ask him to be your savior. But then ask him to just fill you with the wonderful virtue of mercy so that mercy becomes your very identity. I love you. God bless you. If you would like to partner with us at Encouragement Expert, please email us at pastorbacker at gmail.com or you can write P.O. Box 485, Cresswell, Oregon 97426.